and you're listening to Square One, a podcast where we interview entrepreneurs, investors, and executives at the cutting edge of business. And I'm your host, Ramin Shah. Today's guest is Mike Knut, co-founder and chief product officer at Zapier. In Silicon Valley today, it's become a phenomenon to talk about raising less venture capital and going remote to offset capital costs and get better access to talent. This wasn't always the dominant perspective. In fact, it was often looked upon as an inhibitor to building a great company. Zapier has turned those two principles amongst others on their head. Today, the business has raised less than $1.5 million, just recently crossed $50 million in ARR, and has been fully remote since day one. This episode was a ton of fun. I talked to Mike about how him, Wade, and Brian founded the company, their original vision for the business, and how they've successfully led a remote company. Mike's authenticity is audible in his voice, and it was great to hear his very candid and humble perspective on building a -a once-in-a-generation company. Welcome, Mike, and thanks so much for joining us. You know, Mike, I'm really excited to have you join us on the show today and dive pretty deeply into Zapier and, and your perspective on, on building and scaling a high-growth remote company. But before that, tell us a little bit more about your background and the journey from Mizzou to Zapier. Yeah, so um, I uh, attended the University of Missouri, grew up uh, born and raised in St. Louis, uh, went to the University of Missouri, which is central Missouri. Um, there, I was getting a mechanical engineering degree. Uh, I grew up um, learning to code uh, kind of was always a hobby, side projects. And when I was going to college, I was always a little f- afraid that if I did some kind of computer science thing in college, I would get like kind of burned out on it and like it would lose the fun part of what I'd always enjoyed. So I, I wanted to do something different. Um, funny enough, I ended up like kind of getting into a lot of software optimization in the engineering field. So like I just couldn't tear myself away from, from software. And as I was getting kind of up, you know, junior year, senior year, and trying to figure out, all right, what am I going to do after college? Um, I, I kind of started looking around uh, for internships. And, you know, one summer I had sent out, I think, like 20 resumes trying to get, uh, trying to find an in- a mechanical engineering internship. And the only one that got back to me was the software shop that was actually more interested in my software ability than they were my, in- like, hardware mechanical engineering uh, uh, skill set. Um, so that was kind of one of the first pushes for me to really think like, actually this software stuff is like, I'm actually, I enjoy it a lot. This is the stuff that I get a lot of like fulfillment out of working on. Um, and this was around the same time I had a bunch of like side projects and a couple like side businesses at the time. Um, and I started getting more into kind of like the startup space and thinking like, you know, maybe this like engineering thing isn't, you know, this is a, if I go down that path, I'm going to end up working a really, really large organization. Um, I kind of knew what that, that future looked like. And I kind of knew for me personally, like, um, I I enjoyed a lot of autonomy. I I enjoyed uh, having a lot of control over my own destiny with the side projects and small businesses and thought about trying to like get something spun up. Um, I ended up going to uh, uh, grad school at Mizzou as well, but kind of with a backwards intention, um, I ended up getting a a stipend there to, to basically live and work on some engineering projects for about two years with kind of the intention of like work, trying to get some of these side projects I was working on to turn into a, a real business, something that could sustain me full time. Uh, this was about the time I uh, met Brian, my co-founder, as well as Wade um, at a startup weekend. Uh, and Zapier was one of the first things we worked on as a side project together and it took off. So very early into that, uh, yeah, very early into that um, kind of process of trying to find something that might be able to turn into a full-time business, I was able to find something. Um, ended up dropping out of grad school and going full-time 
like that, well, point, it's, that point. It's interesting. Your story is especially unique. I always love talking to founders that have roots. You know, I'm, I'm from Atlanta uh, and I spent a lot of time outside of Atlanta, but I moved back. You know, obviously you're from Missouri. I, I always like talking to founders that have roots kind of in, in different parts of the country um, uh, and, and not the kind of classical New York or Silicon Valley ecosystem because it, it speaks in some sense to having a, a unique kind of story, right? So I, I'm curious, you know, from your perspective, talk a little bit more about your experience of breaking into that kind of classical technical uh, kind of tech startup ecosystem. Obviously going through YC is helpful to get embedded into it, but talk about kind of from going from being an outsider to, to an insider. Sure. You know, it's, it's interesting around 2010 or so, this was when the Facebook platform was starting to, to like really grow. I got really invested in it. This is several of my side projects and side businesses were around the Facebook ecosystem and I uh, remember Facebook used to put on these um, platform events once a year. And I remember thinking to myself like, oh, maybe someday I'll go out to Silicon Valley to go to one of those conferences. And like, that was my, <laughs> that was my view. It's like, I felt like such an outsider that that didn't even seem like something that was like with, you know, that was like a chance that that might happen. <laughs> um, I, you know, I think this is one of the great awesome things about YC is that they don't screen for that, right? They're, they're, they take applications from anyone over the entire world. Um, we actually, when we first applied to YC too, uh, we, had, we had applied twice. The first time we applied right after we, that startup weekend that we got started at, uh, we just got email rejected as well. Um, so definitely, I think, you know, as three, you know, founders from the Midwest definitely had a little bit of a chip on our shoulder, like, all right, Silicon Valley doesn't believe in us, but like, we're going to do this anyway and kind of prove them wrong a little bit. <laughs> and I think that's like a healthy mindset to have, right? Um, uh, you know, you don't have that support infrastructure. There's no capital, there's at least not much capital available to you in the Midwest. So it kind of changes the dynamics of how you think about building your business, um, right? Like in the Midwest, without capital, it's kind of like, all right, well, we need to build a profitable company. We need to build something that has a lot of value, that has immediate value that people are willing to pay for. Um, obviously that now we got into YC the second time around and that was very helpful from a, you know, partnership standpoint and kind of really giving us like a bit of a stamp of approval with the 1500 partners that we, that we now have today. Um, but yeah, I definitely think it changes the like mindset you bring into your company when you, at least when you first get started. No, I think, I think it's a, I think your framing is spot on. And I think it's actually a really, really healthy mindset having from <clears throat> outside the ecosystem, moving inside of the ecosystem. I, I run a services business in Atlanta and, it's so much of our thought process is consistently around, you know, profitable growth, right? And I think actually when you mix it with the Silicon Valley ethos, the tech ethos of ambition, kind of widespread uh, vision on the world, it's, it's great from a top-down perspective, but the bottoms-up perspective you're spot on is the root of how you're thinking is, you know, what's the ROI on my investment? How do I, how do I generate a profitable business? And so I think the mix of perspectives is actually very healthy. I agree. Yeah. When we were starting Zapier, you know, I think our original goals thinking all the way back, we're, we're um, fairly like small by today's <laughs> standards. Um, you know, we wanted to build something that could sustain us. We wanted to build a company that we would like working at. We wanted to deliver like value for our customers. Um, and I think as we have scaled Zapier over the years, you know, we realized, wow, there's actually a much larger opportunity here that we maybe didn't even see when we first started the company. Um, and that's also been a pretty exciting journey to like see, uh, see kind of like the vision and see the opportunity grow as the company. Yeah. So let's talk about that a little bit more. You know, Zapier, obviously a very important company in, in the 
kind of business productivity ecosystem, if you, if you would. And, you know, the business has grown materially over the last, you know, dec- seven, seven or eight years or so since you guys founded it, crossing the $50 million ARR mark, uh, having raised only a few million in early stage financing, which is definitely something I want to talk about. Um, and I think there's a lot of different uh, aspects of the way that you guys have built the company, which, which are really, really interesting. And we'll, we'll dive into a lot more. You know, one is obviously what I just alluded to, how much capital you've actually raised relative to your scale. And then the second, um, which I think we'll spend a good amount of time on, is from how day one you guys have been a 100% remote company. So before we jump into those topics, you know, give, give the audience a little bit of a brief on you know, Zapier, what it is, and, and where the business is today. Yeah, if you're not familiar with Zapier, Zapier is workflow automation software. Uh, we work with 1,500 plus uh, apps, uh, SaaS software, uh, business software, typically. And I think like one of the trends that you're seeing in the industry, we've seen over the last decade or so, is that um, you know as the as the cost to building software has decreased and the accessibility to scaling software has increased, you start to see this move away from kind of the giant behemoth cornerstone software platforms like Salesforce, like Google into more like specialized best of breed software where there's a tool that like does the job that you want very specifically, but very well. So what you're seeing is you have these organizations that are using hundreds of tools uh, every single day across their whole company. And it kind of necessitates something like Zapier to exist because often the workflows that a company or organization is setting up or an individual is setting up span these, these different tools. Um, so you often need, you need something that can like plug and play data between them or automate actions between these different tools just to kind of replicate the workflow that you're doing. Otherwise, you know, the alternatives is like hop, sitting there and copying and pasting data all day or manually running these workflows like with an intern or even maybe somebody else. And I think the, the opportunity and the, the power of Zapier is it, it enables you to automate a lot of that stuff to allow you to focus on more higher value activities for the organization instead of having to um, you know, do that manual rote work that computers should be doing for talk you. About, talk about the fundraising dynamic a little bit more, because I think it's, 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 a, it's really interesting, actually, the way that you framed, you know, what the business does. I had Peter Reinhardt from Segment on, uh, you know, a couple episodes back, and we, we kind of talked about this very similar dynamic of the idea of, you know, how, how many, dis- in their, you know, in their ecosystem and in their business, how many disparate data sets and data sources they are. And if you, if you were able to combine those together, you know, what the power of customer insight would be. And in, in many ways, you know, similar type of dynamic in your guys' business, which is you've got this kind of, you know, large platform forms that solve the kind of general out-of-the-box problems, but there's a whole opportunity at the edges, right, in terms of solving very custom and very specific problems, um, you know, for, for businesses, especially for small and medium-sized businesses. When I look at your guys' two businesses, um, and, and frankly, when I look at a lot of you know, businesses that I would categorize kind of in the segment type category versus your guys, I think there is a there is an interesting dynamic at play, which is this fundraising aspect, right? Those businesses, those companies, many of them have, of which have come out of YC that have become household names, have raised, you know, hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars. Um, you guys have on, on the opposite side have actually raised very little. Um, and I'm very interested in understanding a little bit more of that, you know, dynamic and that thought process, especially at a time in which I think the broader tech ethos, uh, you know, the press, the ecosystem, et cetera, celebrates, you know, fundraising versus actual business traction. I think there's a, there's an interesting kind of perspective shift embedded in there also, which is to take a kind of truly, you know, I'd, I'd actually call the way you guys have thought about fundraising, one of the 
one of the remaining contra true contrarian opinions in the tech ecosystem today. Talk a little bit more about how you guys thought about fundraising and, and why, you know, as you've scaled the business, you've, you've stayed true um, to the amount that you've raised. Yeah, the, I, I often joke Zapier, uh, to your point, is very much an edge case machine <laughs> in the number of things that it can do, hundreds of thousands of different use cases. And like that is our, uh, that is our boulder to push up the hill is like, how do we make a sense of those hundreds of thousands of use cases and like consolidate them down to like a really simple user experience? Um, you know, I, I mentioned like when we were first getting started, capital is not abundant in mid-Missouri. So, you know, from just uh, a starting the company perspective, like how are we going to do this? We kind of had only one path forward, which was, well, we have to figure out a way to you know, make this business work with just the three founders. Fortunately, we had a really good division of responsibility where we were able to build the website, build the backend infrastructure, sell the customers, uh, market to customers entirely within us. And we were able to get that initial traction, um, you know, with very limited amount of initial investment. Um, one of the, uh, after we went through YC, um, we officially launched in uh, summer of 2012 while we were going through uh, the program. And after YC, I remember we, Brian Wade and I, we used to all do, and everyone at Zapier still does uh, all hand support. But at the time we were, all three of us would wake up and we had a single, uh, we had emails that would come into our support box and they would send out to Brian Wade and I all separately in our inbox. So we would all have to jointly do support until about noon every single day to get through like all these edge cases that customers were like writing in about and wondering about, like, how do I, how do I deal with this? Your software's not good enough yet. Like, how do I make this stuff work? Um, and it was only at that point, then we could finally transition actually to building the software and making it better and making it good for customers. So it was really early on when we realized like, okay, the first thing we really need to scale this business is like, we need some help on the support side to give us more time to actually make the software better to reduce the total amount of support that we were doing. Um, and at that point in the business, you know, we didn't have revenue to be able to sustain a full-time hire quite yet. Um, one of the things that YC is best at is always like the fundraising, like getting access to a lot of investors, getting your brand out there. Uh, and we took advantage of that, um, kind of with the intention of giving us a early kickstart into hiring, because we kind of looked at the business and said, well, we could, you know, wait and slow down, you know, wait, wait on this hire for another four months, let revenue catch up and then make the hire, or we could do it now and be in a better spot then. Um, and I think that's kind of the, approach we've always taken with fundraising. You know, we're not dogmatic about not raising money. Like we did. <laughs> um, we, we take a, a more, I think, utilitarian approach, which is like, what are, what's the value and utility we're going to get out of doing it? Um, so in the early days, it was, we're going to accelerate hiring by a few months so that we can build a product and make, reduce the amount of hiring we're going to need to do in the future. Um, so like, that seems like a great business decision. So we did it. And, you know, very quickly after we made that decision, we, um, about a year and a half later, got profitable where uh, we've always had a bit of a scrappy mentality in terms of how we thought about hiring and scaling. We've built a lot of internal tools, of things that I think have helped us scale with just fewer people um, and like higher leverage on the individuals that do exist. So we're able to become profitable. And, you know, since then we haven't had that, there hasn't been something where there was clear utility for raising more money that's going to materially grow the business. And how are you, um, talk, you know, never say talk, never. Talk there about could that be a little but, bit more. Uh, just talk, yeah, talk, talk about that a little bit more, right? Because in a, in a classic kind of SaaS ecosystem, the, the logic is once you found product market fit, if your unit economics are great, right, it really is kind of a land grab, right? So raise a bunch of money, go capture all the customers, you know, and at a, at a point in time, you'll dial sure. back on growth, right? Well, so how did you guys think about that? And why, why is your business different? Yeah, um, well, 
I think the classic thing that you spend money on uh, if you're in a software business is yeah. hiring. <laughs> like that's the, mo the biggest expense that you're going to incur is like hiring employees. And we were hiring at the rate that we felt we could sustainably bring people into the organization on. Um, you know, the, 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 that was not our constraint basically as a business was hiring. Like we, we felt like we were bringing in people at the rate that we needed to in order to continue to grow the business at the growth rates that we were expecting. Um, and, you know, I, I think a lot of folks here, examples of things like Zapier or other companies that are more capital efficient, they think, oh, you know, growth rates must be lower and they're just willing to kind of like accept that. Um, that's not the case. Like we, we, I every year benchmark Zapier's growth rate against like, you know, IPO SaaS companies like Zendesk, Twilio, Shopify, you know, th those are our peer groups. Those are the people that we pay attention to. And we're like matching their trajectories from, you know, one to hundred million ARR. Um, so, you know, given that feels good, given that we don't have the constraint on hiring, um, you know, there's not a lot of other things that you'd pour capital into and, and we just don't want to sell equity for the sake of it. <laughs> um, so I, I can certainly think about future scenarios where it will make sense to do it. Consider like you want to acquire, you know, um, acquire another company to fold it into the product line. Maybe you have like a really solid, you know, uh, black box ad campaign where you put a dollar in, you get $2 out. Um, you know, I can imagine scenarios where it makes sense to do it. We just don't have those in front of us today. Let's talk a little bit more about, about hiring specifically. Um, I, I like the way you framed it, which is, you know, in my, in my mind, when I think of what software businesses spend their money on, it's either customer acquisition cost, um, which, you know, for SMBs is, is kind of a, is a whole different conversation um, or, or it's hiring. Right. And I, I want to talk about hiring and, and kind of the way that you guys think about talent for the majority of the remainder of the conversation because you guys run a very, very unique structure. Uh, I mentioned earlier in one of the questions, you know, from day one, you've been 100% remote company. Uh, talk a little bit about the genesis of why you went remote and what the thought process was. And then I'd love to spend, you know, the time actually talking much more deeply on how you've operationalized being remote. Yeah, so some context too, we have about a little over 220, I think now full, you know, full-time all remote. Uh, about I think 65% of it's in North America time zones, and the other 35% is outside those time zones all across the all across the world. I, I like to say the sun never sets on Zapier now. Um, going all the way back though to the beginning, um, so when it was just Brian Wade and I, um, it was Zapier was a side project for the first several months of its existence. We did not have an office. We I was a full time student at the time. Brian Wade had full time jobs. So the way that we kind of got started was. Uh, remote, like I would work out of my apartment. I might work from campus. Brian and Wade might like, you know, work from their home offices in the evening. Um, and so that, that like felt pretty good to us. You know, I don't think at that point we'd thought like, oh, we're going to build a remote company, but it was just like how Zapier got started. Uh, when you go through the white Combinator program, uh, they uh, require everyone to move out to the Bay Area for three months. So we had three months stint there uh, during the summer where we were all in person in, in uh, Sunnyvale, uh, Sunnyvale, California. But after YC was over, um, my girlfriend and now wife was finishing law school at the time back in Missouri. So I was kind of doing, uh, I, I was like half here, half there. I, I was flying, you know, twice a week, basically back and forth between, or twice a month between Missouri and California. And this was also the time that we wanted to start hiring folks too. And, you know, we didn't have a network in Silicon Valley. We didn't know very many people uh, in the Bay Area. Uh, the networks that we had were in the Midwest. They were elsewhere in the United States. Um, and those were the people that we wanted to work with. Those are the people that we wanted to hire and we thought could do a really good job at Zapier. So um, 
it kind of just made sense. Like, let's give this a try. You know, we've been doing it before YC and it was, we're having a lot of success. Um, you know, Mike, I, I was already being part-time remote. The people we wanted to hire, we knew we couldn't get them to move out to the Bay area. They had families and they were like, you know, established in the cities that they were in. So let's give it a try. And I, by time we got up to eight or nine people, um, it was pretty clear that like remote just what wasn't just like an experiment anymore for us, that it was actually a better way to work. And that's when we really made the decision like, okay, let's, let's continue to scale this way. And cause this is working. And in fact, it's not just working. It's actually better than what we were doing. Before. And so let's, let's talk about that a little bit more. Let's talk about kind of the, that turning point and that crux of how you figured out it's a, it's a better way to work. You guys have a really cool, and I'm going to, I'm going to link it in the post for, for our conversation. You have an awesome kind of 200 page Zapier guide to working remote. And in it, there are three ingredients um, that you guys talk about that are critical to making remote teams successful teams tools and processes. We'll, d- we'll dive into each one of those, but at a high level, talk about, you know, why those are the three categories or ingredients, you know, versus any others. Sure. Teams, um, really important because I, when, you know, when I think about teams, I think of cultural values and the biggest benefit for having cultural values is you get people to opt into your culture that are going to be successful there, or they know what the culture is, so they can make that decision themselves, whether that's the type of environment that they personally think they would be successful in. Um, so from a team perspective, we've just learned a lot about what makes really, a f- what makes folks successful in a remote environment. And we screen for that. And those are our cultural values too, uh, to give folks like a sense of what it's actually like to work at Zapier before they make, make that leap or not. Um, tools are really important for us because, um, they enable us to be efficient, really. Uh, I mentioned at the top of the call, uh, you know, tools are what enable us to scale with that capital efficiency. Um, they enable us all to get more leverage out of our individual jobs than we would otherwise. Like we also have to think about Zapier in this way too, but we've built a ton of internal tools to help us. And I think that's been a pretty critical component of running a remote company. And then the process side, um, w- one of the biggest things I've learned about running a remote company is that the things that you have to do from a process perspective are not unique to a remote company. You have to do them earlier though. Um, so things like, you know, you think through uh, alignment mechanisms or hiring processes, all these things you have to get a lot more specific and intentional about in order to run a remote company because you can't fall back on the fact that everyone's kind of in one place, <laughs> so to speak. So like fall back to just, you know, the chit chat or side conversation to figure out how you actually work. You can't observe each other working. So you have to be a lot more explicit. Um, and yeah, I think those, those three categories are what we've invested the most into and have found, you know, outside this running a remote company is pretty similar to running a a co-located team. Um, and these are kind of the unique angles that I think we've invested a lot into over the last six years. Talk about the process side a little bit more. What are some of the, you know, biggest non-obvious challenges, uh, you ran into, you know, in building a remote company from a process perspective? Communication is always the hardest one with this. Um, you know, I think the benefit of remote is the biggest benefit is you get to hire the best people anywhere in the world. We are not constrained to the area. We are, we're not in the talent war where, um, you know, we, we can only hire people who are willing to move to the Bay area. We get to hire people, the best people wherever. And some of our best, you know, engineers, best folks on the team are not in the Bay area. Um, but the thing you have to figure out is communication. So, uh, I've, um, over, over the years, I, I, I kind of like put a few pegs in the ground around like kind of bandwidth for communication. Um, the four big ones I've seen, um, if you kind of go up, for, uh, go down from the top, okay, you've got co-located team, you know, this is 
the highest bandwidth you can have. You've got body language, verbal, nonverbal communication, uh, everything. Um, going one step down, might have like video calls, uh, audio calls. One step down from that, you've got like chat tools like email or team chat like Slack. And then the fourth and like furthest one down is no communication at all. People don't talk to each other. Now, the thing that goes along with these is as you go down that spectrum, your distraction also goes down as well, which is a good thing, right? So like in co-located teams, I can walk over and tap you on the shoulder. I can get your full attention, but I completely distracted you from what you've been working on going all the way down to, you know, nobody's talking to each other at all. Well, I can be 100% focused in the work that I'm doing. And the thing I've observed is that co-located teams default to that highest mode of communication by default, right? They, they the, the typical way you do it is like you walk over and tap your coworker on the shoulder, get their full attention, completely distract them, but like you can have that high bandwidth. In a remote company, the default is actually nobody talks to each other. And this is why you're so intentional about developing the processes of the company is what are the processes and checkpoints that we're gonna share information with each other and we found it really helpful. And one of the things I like encourage all the new engineers that join Zapier, all the new teammates that join is to learn how to over communicate because it can feel weird in a remote setting. <laughs> it's, it's, it doesn't feel as natural to go in Slack and just log the work that you're doing. But this is so helpful for the rest of your team who might not be in your time zone, might not be working at the same time that you are, even if they are in the same time zone, to pick up that ambient context on what's going on to help them kind of like move their work forward or contribute to your work without having to get stuck in that Q&A response cycle. Um, you know, if I'm in a remote company and I have a question for you and you're eight, eight hours away time zone wise, I'm going to have to wait like a full day to get that answer. Whereas if I'm just kind of lo ambiently logging context, I might be able to answer my own question um, or I might be able to go find a public written document, document somewhere that has the answer that I need uh, that's going to enable me to get unblocked. Um, so yeah, the communication is the biggest one that process enables and it helps get folks from that low bandwidth where they get stuck to like move up the bandwidth chain um, so they can continue to be successful. And what are, what are some of the other processes that, that you guys have crafted, you know, whether it's around communication or, or, or separately, but what are some of the other processes that you guys have kind of tactically implemented that have worked, worked well? And then, you know, a secondary point to that is how have you, how have you learned either main, how have you learned to maintain those principles as you get to the next set of scale in the organization. You know, too often in tech, I think in general, we fall in love with, you know, companies as a function of ideas, whereas the reality is really get really great things get built off the backs of, of rigorous and intentional operations. I, I had Keith Raboy on the podcast last year. We talked a lot about, you know, operating uh, at, at length. So I'm, I'm interested in your perspective, you know, given, especially given the crossover between remote and, you know, how to maintain that execution velocity. Mm -hmm. I certainly think there's something true to uh, that sentiment that you're describing around like executional velocity is important. Um, I, I think there's some areas there that I might disagree with a little bit though. Um, when I when I look around Zapier, some of the like highest value things that we've built, some of the most effective things that we have built have come from either an individual person or a mm -hmm. very small team. and. I think we've intentionally tried to scale the organization this way too, to try and empower individuals and small teams to do a lot where they don't have to bring, they don't have to worry about the communication overhead. They don't have to worry about the overhead of the communication in order to be able to move fast. I think it's much easier for like, an, it's, it's much easier for an individual person to move very quickly because they have like no external dependencies, right? They can just put their head down and go to work. Small team, a little bit better. You have a little bit of like coordination you have to do. 
you start thinking about, you know, massive four or five team projects like that, then you really, that's where I think this idea of like operational velocity matters a lot more. You should think about a lot more. For building software, I think software can get built by and large, small teams, individuals can have a lot of outsized impact. One of our def uh, our number one values actually the company is, is uh, default to action, which goes along with this idea of remote. Um, you don't have someone who's looking over your shoulder all day at your work. So like we really value individuals who don't get blocked, who if they see constraints or see, get, feel like they're getting stuck, they have ways that they can unblock themselves and find good things to work on despite not knowing the path ahead. It can like kind of run through barriers and run through walls. And like one of the benefits of this value and like the setup and the structure of a remote company kind of comes back to this idea that there's no, there's less distraction. Um, I can go heads down on my work for four or five hours at a time and not get distracted. I can close Slack. I can close my email very easily and know there's no one else in my home office. I can go get really focused on the work that I'm doing. And that has a significantly outsized impact on this idea of execution and velocity. When you don't have distraction and you're unbounded and you have the ability to run through walls, you know, that's, that's the kind of person we're screening for. That's the structure that we want to set up in the organization because we've seen so much of our like best products or best features have been added and built through that mechanism. And defaulting to action is actually one of the, one of the practices from you guys that I, I like a lot. Uh, and I'm glad you brought it out organically because it was one of the things I wanted to talk about. Defaulting to transparency is, is another one that I really like a lot. Talk a little bit more about the thought process behind that one. Yeah, these are um, two of our, our five company values. I, I think these two are probably the ones that speak the most to building, um, the, you know, coming back to values as a way to uh, kind of identify whether this is the type of environment that you are can be successful in or you like being successful in, or as a guidebook for teammates in Zapier on how to ha have the most chance of being successful. Um, yeah, I think these both stem from the fact that we are fully remote. Uh, I, I think personal autonomy is kind of like one of the values that Brian Wade and I all shared when we were originally building Zapier back in 2012, you know, thinking about what's the type of company we want to work at. Well, we wanted to work at a company that would respect our individual autonomy and our ability to think about problems and like choose good things to work on and like go execute on those things without having to you know, convince and play politics. Like if this is a smart thing to do, like let's go do it and not worry about, um, you know, the constraints that might, uh, you know, the, the fears, I guess, the latent fears of like, you know, things that might slow us down there. Um, so when we're thinking about the values, like they kind of stem, stemmed from that, right? Which is, okay, how do, what's, that's why our number one value is default action is like that, I think goes hand in hand with this idea of like personal autonomy and ability to have a high impact as an individual. And then the second one, default to transparency, is almost a necessary value to go with the first, because in order to be able to effectively know what to work on and how to default to action, you have to know what else is going on in the company. I have to be able to know and look at and look up or pull up, you know, what's what are our growth rates? What are our metrics on the business? What are other teams working on? What are we prioritizing? Uh, what, what are we, what are we like scared about? Like all those types of things have to be written down and shared with the rest of the organization. If you're going to be able to pick the smart things to work on. So in Zapier, all work product is public. Like anything we talk about that has to do with like roadmaps, what we're planning on our OKRs, our goals, all of that is shared in public environments. Um, now, not everything is transparent this is default to transparency. We do have some things that are more private, like hiring channels for talking about feedback for candidates 
um, you know, but personnel decisions and things like that. Like there's definitely some carve outs to this rule, but all the work product to talk about the work, tell people and, you know, know how to default to action. All of that is, is public. And I think those two values go very hand in hand that enable the, enable the business to work the way it does. Yeah, I like I like the relationship a lot, and I like the framing. I, I think there's another piece which which you have a very interesting perspective on, um, which which goes hand in hand with that, which is this idea of how to avoid decision fatigue and think about decision making. You know, per, in, personally, in, in my role right now, I I run a company of about seventy people, and it's something I think about all the time in terms of where do I jump in, where do I get involved with, where do I pull back, how do I avoid decision fatigue, um, and frankly, how do how do I make good decisions with you know, limited or, or vague information sets, which is, you know, way more often in common, um, you know, than, than would be the case in kind of an academic setting. How do you talk a little bit more about how you think about mm-hmm. decision-making? Because I think your, your perspective on how to avoid decision fatigue is, is, is really interesting. Yeah, there's a lot of interesting research um, out uh, that I've read around decision fatigue specifically, where um, you can kind of think about, uh, you have this like fixed bucket of decision-making bandwidth on any given day, any given week um, over a time period. And like, it's a fixed, there's a cap on as you like use up that, uh, that bucket of decision-making uh, ability uh, that like your ability to make decisions and the proficiency, which you're going to make those decisions like goes down. Um, so there's definitely some utility in trying to like f- figure out what is your personal kind of cap for decision-making and then like optimize to make sure you're not going over that. Otherwise it's going to get, you know, it's going to get worse. Um, the other way you can do it is try to reduce the amount of like energy it takes to make any given decision. And this is the thing that I focus a lot on Zapier is um, I think a lot about like meta frameworks for how to think about hmm. opportunities, how to think about decisions. Like, should we hire this person? Should we work on this project? Um, all of those kind of decisions. I've tried to find meta frameworks for thinking about them because oftentimes those decisions are very hard, right? There's a lot of nuance. There's a lot of like uncertainty. There's a lot of stakeholders. Um, and those, those things take a lot of energy in order to work through. You might only be able to get a couple of those a day uh, at best. Um, so how do you reduce those things down into more easy decide, you know, things to decide? And I think this is where meta frameworks can really help out, where you put the thinking in ahead of time to decide what is my like, kind of framework for how I'm going to make this decision so that when the decision comes up, I don't have to think about it. I can just apply the framework. And it doesn't make the decision free anymore, but, or it doesn't make it free, but it makes it certainly less expensive from an energy perspective. So for example, one of the um, very hard ones, should, should we hire this person? Uh, obviously Zapier has a large hiring process. We have lots of individuals that contribute into this and, and weigh in. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, the hiring manager got to make a decision. Should we hire this person? And the framework that I've used kind of fits this format of like, if you're trying to decide whether to do X, uh, what is like kind of, is there one standalone reason to do X discounting everything else? So this is a bit of like a proxy for like excitement too. Um, if all you have is kind of like a set of half reasons to do something, I've kind of made my own meta, my own meta thinking on this is if I only have half reasons, the answer is no. But if I can identify and clearly articulate like one key reason why that this should happen, um, that gets me to yes. So this happens very frequently in hiring where you talk to a lot of candidates who, you know, the, the interview goes fine. It was, they answered all the questions. Like there wasn't anything, they didn't say anything bad that disqualified them, but they, nothing like stood out after, if you, if you step away from that interview for a week and come back and you think about that candidate, that experience, like nothing like stood out to you as a reason to hire. And to me, that's a default no. 
Um, I'm looking like when I'm going through my own interviewing process, I'm kind of looking for like, what's that one standalone reason out that I can point to and say, yes, this is the reason why this person's going to be better than every person else that we've, that we've talked to. Um, so these are, this is like the type of framework and it makes those, those decisions much more simple and easy to do in the moment because I can apply that to the situation a lot easier than I can trying to wrestle through all the ambiguity of all these different opinions folks have and all the different inputs and stakeholders. Uh, really simplifies it to get that energy level down. You can make more of those. Yeah, Coinbase has a, has a really good one actually on, on hiring specifically, which is if, you know, if the candidate's not a hell yes, then it's a no, right? So I think it actually speaks very similarly to the sentiment you were alluding to, right? Which mm -hmm. is if there's a spike that you can't get really excited about and you kind of have half, not half truths, but half reasons rather to, you know, put together a case for a candidate, it's probably a no, right? Which subconsciously there's, it, it probably, you know, you probably know in your in your gut it's a no, but as you're trying to rationalize it out, you, you kind of see on the table a lot of reasons that could be false positives of why the candidate could be okay. So it's a, it's an interesting kind of meta framework yeah. um, to think through. I'm curious, where do you, I, I'm, I always ask this question to folks that are, you know, about the same age as we are, which is, especially as a young founder, kind of young, you know, C-level, um, you know, person in a, in a fast-growing company, where, where do you get your inspiration from? Where, where do you, when you take a step back and you say kind of Mike's journal of meta frameworks and you look and you say 50% of them are from this person inside tech, outside tech, where, where do you get your inspiration from? Yeah, I think there's, there's like a handful of, of folks um, that I respect a lot and, and follow pretty closely for different reasons, I think. Um, you know, I, I think as I've thought about this type of question in the more generalized version, it's, um, you know, you can often point to folks that you respect and admire and like identify like what's the key attributes of what they like of, of what they what they do or how they act or how they operate that you like a lot or want to try and emulate or learn from. Um, so if, uh, like Patrick Collinson, for example, at Stripe, I, I think that Stripe has done a really good job of building like an intellectually rigorous culture. And I think that stems from what you see from Patrick. Um, Sam Altman at YC, I think Sam is one of the clearest speakers in a public speaking environment, the ability to like articulate his thoughts. Um, you can tell he spends a lot of time like thinking about how he's going to speak and preparing in that way. And I think that like that's something on his end that I respect and admire a lot. Um, Greg Brockman is another person who is at Stripe. I think he's an open AI now. Uh, Greg is like one of the clearest writers I've ever read. Uh, so, when, you know, when, I, when I'm like, we have a very ha large habit in Zapier of writing uh, every week. Everyone in the company writes a Friday update. And I always think about it and like think back to his post, like, all right, how, how could I make this simpler, make this more clear? Um, I, you know, I, I'm a big fan of like um, uh, Musk for, you know, I'm Musk for like Tesla from a clarity of vision standpoint. I think that. Uh, you think about how, you know, how do you outline a vision that's exciting to folks and make it very tactical, like from a step-by-step -step basis and how you're going to get there. I think that's something that Tesla's done a really good job at. Um, so those are just kind of a, a sampling. Generally, when I'm like trying to find folks of, uh, you, you know, think through folks I admire, I often try to go down to the next layer, which is like, okay, what about them do I respect a lot and like and want to try and emulate or take away from, from that in some way. Um, I, I think it's, I, I found it's very hard to find like one person that you holistically <laughs> want to emulate. And I think it's probably a bad practice anyway, just to like copy wholesale. But I think you can find bits and pieces of different individuals that you like to kind of build your own, you know, 
build your own person, build your own way of like. No, I think that's I think that's spot on, right? It's like if you're building a superhuman basketball player, you'd say you know the passing ability of of LeBron, the clutching of Michael Jordan, right? The shooting of Steph Curry and so on and so forth. So I, I think that framework for really anything in terms of folks that you emulate or look up to is is the right way to kind of break it break it down at that next level. Um, Mike, I'm, I, as we as we round out the conversation, um, I want to ask you the the you know the Peter Thiel question, um, which is uh, you know what's one truth in the world you believe that others wouldn't agree with you, and and do it as applied to company building. I'm curious what you know one truth about scaling um, is that you believe that very few people agree with you on, and it's funny. It, it really, honestly, as I asked that question, it, I. I recognize that it might've been our entire conversation around remote, um, <laughs> but maybe maybe it's something else. I'd love to get your thoughts. Yeah, I, I think the biggest thing still is, it is around remote, but I think it's angle on this, which is that building a remote organization, especially for software, and I can't speak to every company. Like I, I definitely think there's probably benefits and different uh, angles on this for you know building hardware, uh, building different types of organizations, but for building software, remote is not just like an acceptable alternative to a co-located team. I think it's a better way. I, I, I've definitely seen the industry tr- like kind of think around this change over the last six or seven years when we were first getting started with Zapier and we were trying to raise that one million, uh, $1.2 million round. <laughs> Several VCs you know, would talk to us and say, oh, you don't have an office? Uh, all right, uh, cool. So when are you gonna grow up and become a real company? And that was the mentality. And I think you, you've seen that shift over the last six or seven years, uh, perhaps due to other constraints, <laughs> perhaps due to the uh, hard yeah. to find talent in the Bay Area, though uh, I, I think the tools have caught up. And, um, but I, I still think a lot of organizations that are kind of still very timid around remote, like especially for software orgs, like, is, you know, should I do this? Maybe I'll experiment with it and try it out. Um, I, I, I think we've proven that building software, it, it's not just... Uh, an okay way to do it. That's a, you know, an alternative what's being done today, but it's actually better, you know, coming back to the key reason of it allows folks to go heads down. Um, you know, in a remote organization, you have significantly less distraction and enables you to go get focused on the task you actually have in front of you. And that enables you to have enables the best individuals to have a significantly higher amount of impact than they would have if they were, you know, constantly in email <laughs> all day long. Um, so yeah, I think that's. I, I think the industry is coming around to that. I hope more folks will see that. But I think still today, my sense is that uh, you know remote is starting to be more acceptable, but still is not seen as like the preferred way. Um, and I think more more and more companies will eventually start. It's going to be very interesting way. to track. I think over the next five ten years, especially to your point around the tools. Um, I, I think you know with the with with Zoom. I mean, frankly, with Zapier, with Airtable, with a lot of these tools. Uh, Slack, et cetera, the infrastructure is becoming really, really good. So I, I think I think my hypothesis is we'll start to see that Agreed. become more and more common thread. And I, and I think to your point also around uh, the best talent being globally available, right? Talon warts in, in Silicon Valley or some of these major tech hubs getting, you know, frankly, ridiculous in terms of just pure cost um, and then and retention. It's going to be it's going to be interesting to track. Mike, this has been a a super interesting conversation. I'm, I'm really glad you were able to make the time. You know, thanks so much for joining us and, and really enjoyed having you on. Yeah, I'm glad you were able to make it work. I mean, 